Hey, it's Justin. Before we jump into this episode, I've got some very exciting news. Hayes Fire Studios is bringing you the magic of Holy Ghost Stories in person this April in our very first ever U.S. tour. We're doing five shows, and I'll be joined by Boston Music Award-winning cellist and composer Kendall Ramsour. Tickets are available right now, and every show we've done so far has sold out, so do not wait to get your seats. I want to see you in April. There's more info at the end of this episode, but you might want to pause it right now and grab your tickets at HolyGhostStories.org. All right, how about a story? How long does obedience take? How many minutes or hours or days does a yes to the divine require? Could it be a matter of weeks? or years? And what if one gets interrupted along the way? This is a story about a god of ambitious, relentless vision, who is strangely patient. It's a story about the price of obedience and the charisma of place and the answer to fear. And it's a story about what happens when someone trying to obey admits interruption and begins again. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. An enormous ziggurat soaks up the brutal noonday sun, a brick mountain punching up from the flat landscape of Mesopotamia. Plastered with bitumen, it is a black tar behemoth clawing at the clouds and bellowing a message of greatness to the world. Fortress, civic nerve center, temple to the moon god Sin, patron deity of the great city. Of Ur. 210 feet long, 148 feet wide, and 98 feet tall. The ziggurat can be seen from every part of the city. The brothel district, where men grope and grind and revel in 30 minute stints of slave ownership. The stockyards, where animals are kept and fattened for mass sacrifice to the fickle gods. The prison camps, where abducted children sweat and bleed. And of course, the residential neighborhoods, including the quarter where a gray-haired man tightens the ropes, lashing his every possession onto a series of camels. The animals shift under the weight of it all, cooking pots and utensils, clothing, tents, woolen blankets, mohair tarps, jewelry, musical instruments, a loom, sacks of barley and wheat, dried apricots and figs, jars of honey and oil, casks of wine and beer, jugs of water. The old man's son, waiting by the gate with strong hands and patient eyes, nods when his father gives the signal. He opens the gate, and his father calls the animals. 
sheep and goats crowd through the opening and trot toward the camels, the sun counting the livestock as they pass. He steals a glance at his father, tries to gauge his mood. Even from this distance, the furrowed lines of grief carve shadows across his dad's face, marking seasons of pain, the death of a son, the loss of his wife, the challenge of helping his living son raise his dead child's boy, a daily reminder of the absence, a task more difficult without his beloved partner. Abram closes the gate, smiles at his father. Perhaps leaving will be good for old Tira, a welcome change of scenery, a new start for all of them. Abram's wife, Sarai, adds a few more items to the bundled mass, perhaps, and Abram sees her wedge a small folded tunic between the blankets, much too small for Lot, his late brother's son, but just the right size for a baby of their own. There is no baby, though. Sarah's cycle tolls like a bell each month, an incessant signal of their childlessness. Abram knows she cannot stop thinking about it, praying for it, thinking of names and weaving little tunics. But every year, every week, they get older. How long can they keep hoping? Perhaps something will change. Who knows what awaits them in this new land? Canaan, the voice said it's called. As they near the outskirts of Ur and the hulking ziggurat fades, Tira's gray hair flies in the wind. Lot wipes a tear from his eye, perhaps, as he waves goodbye to a friend who's run after them. Sarai squints into the sun, the western light silhouetting her striking figure and painting her gorgeous cheekbones gold. And Abram, perhaps, offers a prayer to the heavens to the strange God who does not dwell in temples made by hands, the nameless God he worships instead of Sin or the other Chaldean deities, who he knows simply as El Shaddai, the Almighty God. The God who, unbeknownst to Abram, will rebuild the entire fallen world. Beginning with this little caravan. Abram stretches, rises, and steps out of the door of his tent. The sun is just peeking over the eastern horizon, throwing light and long shadows across the camp. He wraps a sheepskin around his shoulders and breathes the morning air, notably cooler here than back home. That's what six degrees of latitude and an extra thousand feet of elevation will do. Abram and Sarai and Tira and Lot are mid-journey, a little more than halfway along the roughly 1,300-mile trek to Canaan. They could not travel as the crow flies. No one would attempt a trip from Ur to the Jordan by heading directly west. You'd never survive the desert. It had to be northwest, tracing Puratu, the Euphrates River, and then back down through Syria and into Canaan. But 
Tira never did turn south. Instead, when he reached the river's headwaters, he pointed his family in the opposite direction, traveling another 40 miles north and settling them against the foothills of snow-capped mountains that might as well mark the edge of the world. They've been here now for... how long? Years. A decade. More. Long enough to gather... well, look at all these people. Servants... Extended family, perhaps, who've joined them from Ur in the years since they left, and other formerly scattered nomadic families who've gravitated to Tira and Abram's clan, recognizing the strength in numbers. Why did Abram's father give up on their original destination and bring them here? Perhaps he was tired and decided he was too old to keep going. Perhaps this was intended to be a stopover, but in time, the compulsion of the words his son heard in Ur faded. This seemed a good enough place to settle. Or maybe something else, some mix of grief and love. The place they stopped is called Haran. Not exactly the same spelling, but Haran was the name of Abram's brother, Lot's father, Tira's lost son. Did this revelation draw the old widower, make him feel like he'd gotten his child back? When he heard the name of this place, maybe it felt like destiny. And did Abram object? Did he wonder what the Almighty would think of their decision to stop? Abram looks over his shoulder, maybe, at the tent where Sarai sleeps then around at their camp, then to the northern horizon where the fortress mountains stand. Perhaps this is as good a place as any to call home. It seems this is his country now. Tira will, in fact, die in this place. But Abram will not. Every day is a version of the day before it. Abram and Sarai wake. Sarai builds a fire and begins making bread. Abram checks on the flocks and herds, gathering, counting, inspecting, making sure there's grass enough and water enough. Milking, slaughtering if they're low on meat, and then skinning, butchering, salting, or smoking. There's weaving and cooking to be done, repairs to be made, disputes to be settled, fences to be built, medicines to be mixed, and fun to be had, of course, board games and music and meals and worship. It's a rich enough life in this noisy camp, but Abram can't help but notice the absence of his own children's voices. Sarai, too, of course, longs for the delightful chaos of an infant's sporadic sleep schedule, the tears following a skinned knee, wildflowers gifted by tiny hands. Perhaps, though, it's not meant to be. Maybe the voice was wrong. Abram will simply not have a lineage. There will be no children of Abram. He will not be a father. He will not have many sons. Perhaps they need to give up on the impossible. 
Days, weeks, years progress like this. And then something happens. Something that brings Abram back to that interaction with the voice years ago in Ur. Perhaps it's a dream, a vivid memory conjured by him as Abram sleeps. Abram is walking through the camp and goes tense at the sound. A flash flood. Water crashing across rocks, tumbling and spraying and consuming everything in its way. He looks to the sheep to see if they're in the path. The tents. No, there is no flood. But that sound, it grows louder and Abram trembles. His eyes dart in every direction trying to find the source. And then the water becomes words. Crashing, tumbling, spraying into the channels and across the hairs and nerve endings in Abram's ears, consuming his mind. Go. Abram freezes as his heart sprints. What? Who? It must be the Almighty God. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Go. From here? And from his father? Why? His history here, his home, his legacy. If you were to leave, he'd become a a traveler, a foreigner, like Cain in the old stories. And go where? When? Thoughts race like stampeding gazelle through Abram's mind, but he has no time to chase them. The waters crash and the voice continues, but musical or, or lyrical, poetic. Now, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram reels. All peoples make my name a great nation. I don't even have a child. And then, as soon as it appeared, the voice is gone. Abram wakes, catches his breath, and decides it's time. He must not put off obedience any longer. Sarai blinks. I'm sorry, what? You want to finish the journey now? You still believe those words after all these years? But Abram's hands have answered the question. He's packing their belongings. Sarai's face is twisted into an incredulous knot. You know you're 75 years old, right? If she offers this remonstration, all Abram can do is concede. (laughs) And you're 65. Yes, he's packing the little tunics. Perhaps something might have happened already if I'd obeyed. You did obey. We left Ur. I didn't leave my father. I took him with me. And I didn't go to Canaan. I stopped here. Maybe Sarai looks at the tunics now, wondering if she will dare to hope. And how? I don't know. 
But where? I'm not sure. And when? Sarai, I heard him speak. I believe him. Yahweh smiles. And so it begins. Four hundred miles later, Abram points to the snowy ridge of Mount Hermon, towering over the highlands of the northern Levant at 9,232 feet. Canaan lies just beyond. And does El Shaddai want us to climb over it? Sarai asks, perhaps. At our age? Abram laughs and then remembers who he's dealing with. Uh, Surely there's a pass. Lot urges the camels on. He's come with them, as have many of the people who became a part of their little clan in Haran. The caravan is not so little anymore. They continue on, but Abram still has no idea exactly where they are going. Canaan is beautiful. The mountains break into a lush valley the locals call the Jezreel. And then, as Abram's clan travels southward, the earth billows into gently sloped hill country. Everywhere Sarai looks, it seems she can spot a flock of sheep or a herd of goats grazing happily. Can you imagine how much milk they must give? Streams bring rainfall down from the uplands through wadis and brooks. Enormous grape clusters cling to vines in winding vineyards. Pomegranates grow like melons. They stop to water the animals, perhaps, and after wandering for ten minutes, Lot comes running back to camp with a syrupy honeycomb. I saw three others. It is an entire land of milk and honey. Near a place called Shechem, Abram spots something on the horizon. Look at that tree. A massive oak punctuates a hilltop, tangled roots gripping the earth while its branches spider outward from the trunk like upturned lightning. The endless canopy eclipses the sun and shelters a well-worn gathering area. Abram is clearly not the first to notice this remarkable place, the Great Tree of Mora the people here call it, the Oracle Oak. For centuries, Yahweh has watched Canaanites gather under its limbs, performing pagan rituals to their false gods beneath the magnificent tree he created and sustains. The Almighty sighs. Time to reclaim this site. Water crashes and Abram's eyes widen. The voice to your offspring I will give this land. The flood evaporates into silence. Abram looks out over the hill country in the shade of the oak. Land, a home, and offspring, generations of life in this place, his children and their children buried in a place that belongs to them, able at the end to be gathered to their people. It's such a beautiful... Does a sudden pain in his knee jar Abram from his thoughts? Or the throbbing of his hip, perhaps? 
They happen more and more often, these aches and pains. He is not a young man anymore. The childless, gray-haired husband of childless, gray-haired Sarai shakes his head. Offspring. Okay. He makes his way around the hill, calling for Lot and others, perhaps, to help. Everyone, gather stones and bring them here. Abram then stacks them one atop another, forming the stones into an altar. Pulled from their random resting places, the once scattered rocks are given order, shape, and a voice. Something happened here. El Shaddai appeared to me. Moments like this must be marked. More traveling. The caravan moves south to more hills, east of a place that will come to be called Bethel, the house of God. There, Abram builds another altar to the Almighty and bows in prayer. And then south again, further on to the Negev, the arid land beyond the Salt Sea. Why does Abram continue moving like this? He's reached Canaan, the place where God told him to go. So why keep traveling inside the area once he arrives? He might be looking for the best land, the right place to settle, maybe searching for a region that's not inhabited already by Canaanite tribes. Or perhaps Yahweh is directing him, sending him from one territory to another in order to show Abram what will be his, familiarizing him with his inheritance. But if Abram bounces from wonder to wonder, astonished at his good fortune and the Almighty's generosity, he finds these thoughts interrupted when, soon after his arrival, things begin to change. The green grasses of Canaan begin to wither and brown. Rain disappears. Wadis empty, springs dwindle and then dry up. Food grows scarce, and before long, Abram's livestock are dying. He notices Sarai's arms getting thin. Word from the towns is that starvation has begun killing children and the elderly. Where is God in this? They cannot stay here. The Jordan is too small for all these people to share. He needs a bigger river. The Euphrates is too far. But the people here are talking about an even greater body of water, an epic serpentine wonder that fans out at the lowlands like a ginkgo leaf, creating an unimaginably verdant delta beside the sea. They call it the Nile. And so... Abram and his hungry people pack their things. Perhaps things will be better in Egypt. I need to talk to you. Sarai looks at her husband. There's gravity in his eyes. Fear, even, perhaps. What is it? It's... 
I... He stumbles, surely, as he tries to tell his wife what he's thinking. Sarai's brow furrows. Even at this age, the wrinkles are a temporary addition to her face. Abram looks ahead, perhaps, and Sarai follows his gaze. Finally, after a week of travel, the delta unfolds in the distance, an endless emerald blanket. Sarai feels Abram take her hand. I know what a beautiful woman you are. It should be a compliment, but it doesn't feel like one. She waits. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Sarai laughs, that dismissive laugh of hers. Good, because I am your... Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Kill you. That laugh again. But Abram is genuinely anxious, and she can see that he's not done. Yes, to take you for themselves. I... I want you to say that you are my sister, so that I will be treated well because of you, and my life will be spared. I'm sorry, what? How is Sarai processing this plan of her husband's? There are questions, surely. Why this concern now and not back in Canaan or in Haran? And, and what happens if they think they don't have to kill you to have me? They just have me? How long do we keep this up? Months? More? And how do we... We'll still be trying to have a baby, right? How are we supposed to sleep in different tents? I sneak over to your place when none of the Egyptians are looking? Declarative sentences proliferate alongside these interrogatives as well, no doubt. I am 65 years old. If those men cannot control themselves... But Sarai is no stranger to the tragic reality of things. Female beauty has long been a liability in this fallen world. There is food in Egypt. More than enough, even, for a clan the size of Abram's. But a caravan this substantial, maybe 3,000 or more people with flocks and herds this numerous, well, it all attracts attention. Before long, Pharaoh's officials have made a visit to this well-heeled foreigner, likely an act of both diplomacy and minor espionage. They take note of Abram's livestock, his tribe of servants and fellow refuge seekers, their textiles and skins, any indication of weapons or the intent to use them. But all else is eclipsed by one observation. Sarai is very beautiful. Her form, her face, her hair. But more than that, surely, she's interesting confident, fiery, and her whole being atomizing the faintest hint of disdain, somehow provoking a desire to prove her wrong, to make her like you, to win the impossible prize of that gorgeous smile. The officials report back to Pharaoh, and instead of being confused or frustrated by what these men believe to be the headline, the king of Egypt is intrigued. Perhaps he's a similar age to Sarai. Or maybe he's hungry for conversation his harem cannot provide. Or he might have the prospect of an alliance-making marriage on his mind. 
The royal attendants returned to Abram's camp with an invitation. Are the words enthusiastic or coercive? It's hard to tell, perhaps. They take Sarai to the palace with the blessing of Abram. She is, after all, only his sister. What exactly happens between Pharaoh and Sarai will remain a mystery to future generations. But Pharaoh is so pleased with her company, he begins sending Abram gifts. One day it's a flock of sheep, a week later a prize bull, then more cattle, donkeys, camels, even servants. It's almost like a dowry in reverse. Abram does not put a stop to this strange relationship the three of them are in. And why not? Perhaps he thinks it's ideal. Sarai is making their clan rich, and Abram's just stalling for time until they can make their escape. Likely, though, Abram's predominant emotion is fear. He was concerned about the danger of Sarai's beauty before they encountered any actual circumstances in Egypt. Now, Pharaoh has taken a liking to her, invested time and emotion and the prospect of further companionship, and rewarded Abram for his apparent endorsement of their relationship. What would happen if Pharaoh found out now that Abram has lied? He'd surely murder Sarai's husband and claim his prize. It's possible Abram hasn't slept in weeks that he lies awake at night worrying about his wife and wondering how those words of El Shaddai could be true. I will make you into a great nation. <laughs> really? It seems a great nation is dismantling what little family Abram has. Go to a land I will show you. I did, and it dried up. I couldn't even stay there. I had to come here and... I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse... And what of those who send blessings to me while they're cursing my wife with casual abduction? It's possible that every gift from the palace makes Abram nauseous, wondering what's actually happening to Sarai, and knowing his own cowardice has brought all this about. How exactly Abram feels is unclear. But Yahweh is a different matter. Pharaoh wakes one morning to a cluster of boils on his forearm, or a drop of blood that emerges when he coughs, or a pain in his stomach, or a tumor on his thigh. And then more, more boils, or blood, or pain, or tumors, all manner of diseases injected into the king of Egypt and all those in his household by Yahweh punishment for the way he's abused his power, retribution for taking his daughter Sarai. And it seems Yahweh speaks to Pharaoh as well, tells him exactly why he's hurling these plagues in his direction. Send for Abram, the king shouts to his messengers. Abram trembles as he enters the palace. The messengers were terse when they collected him. This did not seem like a social call. He walks into the throne room, 
golden panels reflecting the statues of Amunhotep, Anuk, Denwen, and Isis, and reflecting the image of a fuming, panicked king. Frustrated magicians and helpless healers stand awkwardly in the wings, wringing their hands. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? The pharaoh's eyes are wild, afraid. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? The Egyptians wait for an answer as Pharaoh seethes. Abram's thoughts stampede. He's afraid. He cannot put words together. And he tries not to stare, perhaps, but Pharaoh's face is toad skin, covered in bulging boils and dripping pus. Here, here is your wife. Take her and go. He points to Sarai who emerges from an adjacent room, escorted by the king's guard. In no time, Abram, Sarai, and their entire clan are trundling east, out of Egypt, and toward the land of Canaan. It is a complicated scene. A vexed Sarai, a hangdog Abram, the awkward air of recent, unresolved conflict, the gut-level weight of an uncertain future, but also the percolating sounds of a sizable convoy. The caravan is much, much larger than it was when they came, People and sheep and cattle and goats and camels and... Why, this tribe is starting to look almost like a little nation. It is an easy thing to criticize from afar, to judge those who fail, to assume that we'd have done it better. There will be people who do this, of course, as Abram's story is told. People who wonder why this man from Ur, who heard the very voice of Yahweh, stopped in Haran, or acted so fearfully in Egypt. But they will have heard the stories. The old tales of Yahweh's faithfulness, his miraculous rescue, his reliable provision, those stories will be level ground and foundation stone for a sturdy faith. Abram, Abram has so few stories to go on. There is no Red Sea crossing. No walking on water or ladder to heaven at Bethel. Those moments haven't happened yet. Yahweh hasn't been with Joseph in prison or given Samson strength or rescued Rahab and her family. Gideon's force of 300 hasn't routed the great Midianite horde. David has not killed Goliath. Abram doesn't even know God's name. He has so much less 
than those who will come after him. But he's trying. He thinks often, surely, of the stories he has heard. Back in Ur, there was an old man who had wondrous tales to tell. Sights he'd seen with his own eyes, even. Cracked heavens and gushing geysers, torrential waters deluging the earth, and a boat, an ark of salvation provided by the instruction of El Shaddai. Abram would listen as that ancient man, his great-grandfather seven times over, somehow still alive, would tell his story. The children in the family, perhaps enraptured by the lightning and the raging seas, the lions roaring in the tumult, wouldn't be able to contain themselves. Grandpa Shem, how did you survive? And Abram would watch as the patriarch would get a far-off look in his eyes and remember. The Almighty spoke to my father. And my father believed him. Sarai's childless, wandering husband looks up past the moon at the stars as they journey back into Canaan, innumerable points of light defying the darkness. He looks at his wife and then up and down the curling line of his caravan. Okay. Yahweh smiles. Okay. Hey, Justin here. I hope this episode blessed you. I really loved seeing this story with fresh eyes, and I hope you did too. I have one very important, very exciting thing to tell you about. We are bringing Holy Ghost Stories to several cities this spring in something we're calling Holy Ghost Stories Live, The Exodus Tour. If you've listened to the podcast, you've heard about these live shows before, this is your chance to be there, to join me in person for a magical evening where we immerse ourselves in the epic story of the Exodus and meet Yahweh inside it. I will be joined by none other than Kendall Ramsur, the fabulous composer and cellist responsible for the entirety of the musical score you heard in the Exodus series here on the podcast. Kendall is a Boston Music Award winner, a finalist on America's Got Talent. He's 
performed at the Grammys, trust me, you will love hearing him play and experiencing the live accompaniment he'll provide as I tell you this unforgettable story. Not only that, we'll be joined by gifted vocalist Eve Adeline, who will help give voice to our wonder and praise as we gaze upon Yahweh together. I'm telling you, this will be a very special time. So here's what you need to know. We will be in Huntsville, Alabama, Jackson, Tennessee, Little Rock, Arkansas, Austin, Texas, and Fort Worth, Texas. Now, we might add one or two more cities over the next couple of weeks, but that's pretty much the list, and it'll all happen during the last couple of weeks in April. All of the cities and dates are on the website, holyghoststories.org. Tickets go live Friday, February 9th. Be sure to grab them ASAP. These shows consistently sell out. I've heard from many of you, for instance, who were not able to get tickets to the Christmas show before they were gone, and you were really bummed out about that. So do not procrastinate. If you are listening to this on or after February 9th, now is the time to get your seats. I don't want you to miss out. Holyghoststories.org. Now, if you're a patron of the show, one of our esteemed tribe of supporters on Patreon, guess what? You get access a day early on February 8th. That's today if you're listening when this episode drops. So check your email for a secret code that will give you access to the event page. And if you're a raconteur, you get one free ticket to as many shows as you want to attend. We're all so grateful to you. And this is a fun way we get to show it. Okay, lastly, we are doing a pre-show bonus during this tour. It's a meet and greet and Q&A with Kendall and myself before the show that you can add to your ticket at purchase. We want it to be intimate, so there's a limited number of spots per show, but we would love to be able to meet you guys and chat about the Exodus or my research trip to Egypt or the process of collaborating or anything else you fancy. Oh, and seating is general admission, but anyone who grabs the pre-show bonus gets a guaranteed front-of-house seat for the show. We cannot wait to see you in April. I promise you this will be an unforgettable night of story and song. I hope you'll be able to join us. HolyGhostStories.org Finally, a shout out to the Tours, who, along with the other wonderful patrons of this show, make it possible by giving toward this work every month. Steve, Easton, Sean, Joey at Creation to Revelation, Ryan and Kelly, Miranda, Amanda, Carrie Joy, John, Joshua, David, Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Daniel, Stephanie, Helen, Hildy, Debbie, Susan, Rick, Stephanie, Derek, Mindy, Maddie, Jody, Jonathan, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. I'm glad we're in this caravan together. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios, manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt, research, writing, narration, and sound editing by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time.